Hello and welcome to the Intentional Clinician Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Krauss, Licensed Professional Counselor. In today's episode, I'm bringing you not one, not two, but three special guests from Sanford Addiction Treatment Centers. We are going to be discussing challenges in addiction treatment and substance use during a worldwide pandemic. Some of the topics we're going to be hitting are a heightened level of anxiety, alcohol and drug use, relapse and overdose due to the COVID-19 pandemic, the reasons behind the increases, uh, the need for compassionate self-care, what Sanford House and other addiction treatment centers are doing. Um, a, a lot of the problems and not a lot of solutions that we're hearing in the media and the impact of telehealth on addiction treatment. Sanford Addiction Treatment Centers is a residential and outpatient facility located in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Sanford offers excellence in evidence-based practice models in a home-like restorative setting. The clinicians at Sanford Addiction Treatment Centers are supported by a medical team, and they focus on resolving the underlying issues that often cause substance use, such as trauma, unhealthy relationships, co-occurring disorders, and isolation. Programs include residential day programs, intensive outpatient, medication-assisted treatment, education and relapse prevention classes, also including now telehealth and teletherapy, one-on-one and family therapy, as well as alumni and support for families with groups. I'm going to be bringing onto the show Ray Green, JDLPCCAADC, the founder and president of Sanford. Ray has dedicated her working career to chipping away at the shame of addiction. As Sanford's primary spokesperson, her goal is to provide education and awareness of substance use disorders. Ray is a featured expert at conferences in the community and in the media. Her philosophy at Sanford is to provide evidence-based practices, medication-assisted treatment, and a continuum of care in a comfortable setting where healing and a sense of rekindled worthiness is achievable. Linnell Brewster, registered nurse, LPC, LLMFT, CCTP, clinical director, therapist at Sanford. Linnell has been working in the health field for the past 24 years. She is a registered nurse and a licensed professional counselor. Her experience includes working in hospitals and home settings, residential, outpatient treatment centers, and private practice. As clinical director, she works with Sanford clinical and medical staff administering all aspects of group, individual, therapy, and other treatments. This includes residential day treatment programs, residential treatment, outpatient programs, family and alumni programs, and virtual telehealth and care. Marilyn Spiller, Director of Marketing and Editor-in-Chief. Marilyn has been a marketing professional for more than 20 years, most recently in the addiction field. Seven years sober herself, she penned one of the first sobriety blogs, Waking Up the Ghost, starting in 2013. The blog garnered an international following. As Sanford's Director of Marketing, she is responsible for a publication, research, branding, outreach, website design, and search engine optimization. She also manages Sanford's online magazine called Excursions. All right, I hope you are really going to love this episode. I loved interviewing these three amazing women And the Sanford Addiction Treatment Center is my number one choice for people in the Midwest uh, so far for going into addiction treatment. I've toured the facility. It is excellent. They really get trauma, um, and they really know what they're doing. So without further ado, here is the interview. All right. I'm so glad to have on the Intentional Clinician podcast, the Sanford House Addiction Treatment Center's leadership team. Uh, And as you've heard, I read the bios earlier, but Ray Green, Linnell Brewster, and Marilyn Spiller, welcome to the show. 
Thank you. Hi, Paul. Hi, Paul. Hi. I'm so glad that we could do this interview during uh, uh, the quarantine that's continuing, thanks to Zoom and all of that. So um, I'm excited to get into the topics today. We're talking a lot about challenges in addiction treatment, especially considering all of the stress and different challenges of COVID-19 in 2020. And we're going to go into a lot of uh, discussion about that as well as uh, solutions and what we can do uh, to help. And also, we're going to talk a little bit about telehealth and how that's changing the landscape a little bit. So, um, you know, we've introduced Sanford House, so people know a little bit about what you guys are up to. But I wanted to talk first, uh, get all three of your takes, because you all have three completely different backgrounds. So I kind of want to get all three of your takes one at a time about the heightened level of anxiety, alcohol, drug use, uh, relapse, and overdose we're seeing due to the COVID-19 stressors um, that are emerging. So who wants to tackle that one first? Um, I can start with a few comments, Paul. This is Ray. And we're seeing, due to the pandemic and quarantine, a surge in demand for services. But in addition to that surge, we're also seeing people who are in a much more advanced state of crisis. So the disease process um, is happening in isolation while people are in quarantine. So we're seeing a heightened level of desperation amid this crisis. And uh, I think the discussion will take us into more details about why, but but our admissions um, phone line has really become a hotline of sorts. Uh, people calling in for for family members, for themselves, not really knowing where to start uh, looking for help in a much more desperate fashion than we've seen before. So right on the front lines, you're already just sort of seeing the anecdotal evidence of what we're starting to see in the statistics, which is almost too soon to tell, but there's already an uptick. Absolutely. addiction, people reaching out for help with addiction and and in a more severe state. And so I'll just mirror that before I ask Linnell about her interpretation of why and then go to Marilyn. Uh, But I've been, my theory so far is that when you're in isolation, um, and we see this from different studies on loneliness and isolation, that people's, whatever people's chronic underlying um, stressors or issues may be, seem to come to the fore when you aren't uh, in a routine or around uh, friends and family as much or or different uh, and having different opportunities. So there's a sort of like isolative effect. And then I think as we see in our culture, coping, um, coping by drinking or smoking or using drugs and alcohol and whatever has already, already been a, a thing in our culture for, you know, since America started. And now, you know, that's a go-to and we're actually seeing, and I read the other day in the newspaper that in Michigan, here where we are and across the nation, alcohol and marijuana sales are skyrocketing um, to levels never before seen. Um, And they're mostly take-home sales. So not even the bars, just uh, going to the store. And in Michigan, of course, marijuana is legal now. So marijuana is uh, the recreational sales are up, not just the medical sales. So, um, Linnell, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the clinical perspective of uh, what you're seeing and what you what you think some of uh, this heightened level of uh, use and um, 
people getting into an addictive pattern. Why, why do you think that's happening? Yeah, on the front line, as I'm in the houses every day, just talking with clients as well as telehealth, we're really finding that one of the main themes, as you've spoken about already, is the isolation. And that has been the reason for many coming into treatment and for many clients that have relapsed that were doing well. You know, they had their setup of community support and all of a sudden a lot of that went away. And so we are seeing that throughout both houses, the isolation, the extra stress of having to homeschool children, uh, loss of jobs, worrying about finances, how am I going to pay my bills? just all of those uncertainties heightens what they're dealing with already with the addiction. So that's one of the main things that I'm seeing with spending time in the houses and talking with the clients. Yeah. So it seems like, uh, even people that were in a good spot who had been, um, you know, in recovery and doing a good job, all of a sudden, all of these different stressors and, uh, patterns of life drastically changed in a few months. And then, this caused uh, what we see in addiction is relapse. And relapse can be a quick thing sometimes when you're in recovery, but sometimes relapse can become dangerous and go back full into full-blown use. And that's probably why some of the people are coming into intake is that it may have gone back to the severe type of relapse. Um, is that what I'm hearing? Yes, absolutely. So, yes, I think it sounds like we're seeing some of the same things. And uh, Marilyn, if you could kind of share your perspective a little bit um, on this, that would be wonderful. Okay. Um, as um, I, I guess the, the main thing to say is that I wear, as, as relates to this conversation, I'm wearing two hats. One is the marketing director of Sanford. The other is a person in long-term recovery. So I look at it from a couple of perspectives. Um, you know, I, I keep a lot of uh, tracks, track of a lot of statistics. And as you mentioned, Paul, there are, you know, every marker that can be tracked right now is showing that um, everything having to do with anxiety, addiction, uh, chronic uh, pre-existing issues uh, like OCD, uh, suicidal ideology, all those sorts of things are on the rise. Even social media indicators um, are showing that there's a rise in um, hashtags with the uh, with with titles like depression and anxiety. Um, the uh, there's a surge in EMS responses for opioid overdoses and an increase and potential for a large increase in um, opioid uh, related uh, overdose deaths. So um, there's, there's all that going on, but as a person in recovery myself, I've been over the last six months really sort of analyzing all of this. And it, from my perspective, it comes down to two things really. One is what you've already, everybody's already talked about, that's isolation and all of the exigencies associated with isolation. Um, you know, as a person in recovery, I was always told that the opposite of addiction was connection, that um, community was all that isolation was very bad for a host of reasons that, that Ray and, and, um, and Linnell as therapists can, can speak to. Um, and here we are in a situation where, where we're being mandated to isolate. <laughs> 
they, that word was specifically used at first and then they changed it to distancing probably because of people like me uh, writing uh, you know, opinion pieces for, for newspapers. But so isolation is one thing. Um, and then the other is the concept of, of motivation. I mean, more than anything else, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say my recovery has been tested or tried during this period of time. I think everybody's experiencing the same um, issues associated with uncertainty and, and anxiety and loneliness. But um, people in recovery, particularly new to recovery, are um, a vulnerable population because, and I can say this as, as someone in recovery myself, uh, you know, we're always looking for a loophole. And boy, is the pandemic the ultimate loophole. So um, we, we just published an article by one of our uh, therapists, Allie Kitchen, where she talked about the difference particularly as relates to the pandemic between um, motivation and discipline. You know, I can be motivated to um, quit drinking because uh, my husband's going to leave me if I don't, for example. Um, but motivation waxes and wanes, sort of like the weather, or in this case, the pandemic. And um, so, so if you don't have that discipline in place, and again, this is something I'd, I'd love to hear um, uh, Ray and, and Linnell speak of, but your sobriety, your, your, your sober tools, your um, recovery support system, and all the things that you have in place, how you identify yourself as a person in recovery, you, you've got to be able to pull on those things in spades because one of the, the issues has been that um, typical support systems like 12-step meetings, um, and group therapy, which is the sort of cornerstone of addiction treatment, um, has changed to telehealth. So, you know, the, the, the bottom line and, and the reason why I think there's been an increase in, in relapse and, and fear of relapse is, is simply because either those support systems weren't strongly in place or because someone is, is, is not self-advocating and, um, maybe looking for a loophole. Paul, can I add to that? Oh, this yes. Way? Uh, the, um, the, those in, in progressed active addiction um, are well described by Marilyn, but what we're also seeing is that people who are in the category of misuse, and there are about 40 million people in this country who are in that um, state of substance use disorder, um, this quarantine, this crisis, this fear of um, an uncertainty is, is going to accelerate that process. So not only do we see people who have already been diagnosed, maybe are in treatment with support systems, but people who may have stayed in that uh, misuse category are, are being driven by all of these circumstances uh, to progress faster into the disease. And, you know, to drive the, drive the situation um, home a little bit more is that, you know, the opiate epidemic has been called the worst drug epidemic in modern history. And now you've got that um, 
compounded, to use the word probably too lightly, by a pandemic that has never, the likes has never been seen. And so if you talk about, you know, the worst drug epidemic or um, as uh, Judith Grizel wrote in her book uh, last year, that worldwide addiction may be the most formidable health problem. Um, now we've got a pandemic that's the most formidable health problem. So, you know, what we're seeing on the front lines here is is very significant in terms of substance use disorder, depression, anxiety, and, and mental health. Thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, I, I want to say something, and, and, and from here on out, feel free to just jump in whenever. Um, so one of the things I was thinking about when I was thinking about recovery, um, and I worked uh, a lot in the substance use field for about five years, and I became a trainer, um, for doing an adolescent outpatient program, which was um, more based on incentives and rewards and getting into new patterns. So these were people that were not in the addiction category yet. They were probably in the misuse uh, category, just kind of young and identifying. So what we, what we did is we tried to help them have a more rewarding life away from using. So a big part of the program was working on the family relationships, helping them get into uh, sports or something. Uh, interestingly enough, in Phoenix, some of the kids got into this really cool entrepreneur, or, uh, entrepreneur, I'm sorry, some sort of radio program that helped kids learn internship. That's it. Uh, you know, different little activities and improving all those areas of their life. There just was less reason to use. Uh, there was less reason to go to the park after school and and smoke or drink or whatever because uh, they were more satisfied in their life and because the addiction had not taken hold yet they were young you know they weren't uh, and the ones where it had taken hold they needed to go inpatient or into intensive outpatient but we were on the on the low end right these people these kids had just been identified so one of the things that really helped was getting them into these what I call like healthy habits. So not only did the relationships improve with maybe their siblings or their or their caregivers, but um, they would start getting into choir or sports or a, a friend group that did a book club and all these things. So they would have this consistent pattern several days a week of things to do after school and before school. And lo and behold, not all of them quit 100%, but their uh, rate of you know use was usually going down to once a week or less, right? Because Or maybe twice. There wasn't this five days, six day a week use pattern anymore. Um, and what I'm finding with the pandemic is that people are finding it very difficult to have any sort of consistent healthy habit um, because the gyms here in Michigan are still shut down. Uh, although some states have opened them with masks like Colorado and Arizona, uh, we're shut down so that the gym is out, right? So you, you kind of have to be exercising outside um, and uh, sports programs for kids are pretty much shut down from what I've read. Um, the school day is now uh, weirdly differentiated, but depending on what sort of school you go to and where you go, and it could be online or it could be partly online or it could be partly in person or something, that's not a, uh, we're not in a new pattern yet. And then for your adults, I'm hearing a lot of this. Well, I wake up and it's the same day every day. I, I don't have the recreational opportunities to... Uh, go see, you know, my elderly family members. I'm afraid to infect them with COVID-19. I uh, don't, the concerts aren't happening. Um, 
you know, I, I, I don't want to have a big get together with my group that I'm a part of because it's too dangerous. So we were on zoom, which is fine, but not as, you know, it takes a lot more effort. Things are all taking more time. Do we meet out? Do we not meet out? Do we social distance in the park? Um, who's safe, you know, who's not safe. So all these little, little mini stressors on all age groups, I think are compounding into, we don't have any consistency right now besides people that have a job which you need to go to um, there's not much there's not the patterns of our life have been disrupted so therefore when you're trying to make a new pattern and some of the research says 180 days is when it starts to stick a positive pattern um we aren't really getting to that for people that are in recovery so then if you're every day having to deal with a different stressor every week there's so many triggers and stressors, you know, we have the classic hungry, angry, lonely, tired, halt, you know, that those are signals to use. Or we're finding uh, couples, um, have, if they have a children or not, if they have children, way worse, because they're arguing about where should the child go? Should the child be at this birthday party? Should it be an outdoor party? Should it be a Zoom party? And then couples, uh, uh, the increase demand for couples therapy in the last three months from my office is going through the roof. Um, people are, uh, you know, breaking up and doing other acting out behaviors. And then all of this is bathed in increased substance use, which then gets us into even more trouble, right? People are acting out in more bizarre ways. And as you know, um, a lot of accidents and suicides, there is some substance use involved. So um, I kind of was just talking about the triggers, uh, the relapse triggers. And, and the negatives before we move into anything positive. Kind of wanted to get your all your takes on the triggers that people out there, if they have family members or they themselves are struggling, what are what are these things that are, you know, what are the negatives that are causing it? And then what is it maybe, we'll get into maybe what are some solutions? Sure. One, um, I think this is a, a good clinical question that um, Linnell can more thoroughly address. But one thing that you pointed out was about exercise. And exercise is a huge component in the area of recovery. And I'm not talking running a marathon. I'm just talking getting your body moving so those chemicals start start flowing again. And you know we're here in Michigan. And so right now, uh, we've got some pretty nice weather that we can go outside and take a walk. That's going to come to an end as well. And so as... Uh, as a facility that treats people where we um, do exactly what you said, try to get them um, moving and new routines and new patterns with um, exercise being a big part of that, um, that's going to be dramatically impacted under our already confined parameters by the onset of winter. So um, so I'll, I'll let Linnell speak a little bit to our previous uh, program of excursions and how we would take you know, the client's out into the community to develop the skills that you uh, described and how we're handling that in the residential uh, area right now. Yeah, just what we're talking about, doesn't it just show you the importance of recovery and how we need to be providing that support for them. But yeah, that, that has certainly been a challenge um, as the clients come in. That is one thing that we talk about because even in some of their addiction, some of them still had some healthy outlets. You know, they still were able to exercise. There were still things that they were doing and all of, all of a sudden, some of these things are going away. 
and we're finding that a lot of them don't have healthy coping skills. And so when these voids begin to develop, they don't know what to do with it. So that's something we talk about as far as how do we go forward? What do we do in these times of uncertainty, but that we still wanna have healthy recovery and that there are options. So let's dialogue about that. Because even for us now in the houses, we used to have weekly excursions where we would take the community out into the community to have opportunities to explore and see new adventures and discover things that they can do in recovery. And with the um, COVID-19 and the pandemic, we're not doing that anymore. And so we're trying to find other ways, other healthy outlets for the clients. So that's an ongoing challenge, but we're able to go for walks. We're able to go to a park. We're able to do some activities outside and try to encourage, let's implement some of these things. It might be different, but it might be also a good change. And so that's a constant thing that we're talking about. This is Marilyn, um, Paul, and I think you hit the, your, the nail on the head with the concept of structure in recovery and also identifying as something outside of yourself. Um, and just from a personal standpoint, um, I think this is where discipline kicks in, um, you know, especially in a, in a situation like, like COVID-19. Um, you know, we, in, in Michigan, we had a snowstorm in April, you know, I, I identify as a nature buff and a, and a, and a hiker. And on top of everything else, you know, pandemic and then snow in April. So, you know, I mean, I, whenever I'm feeling that Sunday afternoon feeling, you know, and, and a little concerned about, uh, potential for triggers i just put on some hiking boots and go and i i did that like throughout throughout this whole thing i was able to find blandford nature center gets my uh gets my my gold star for helping me during this whole process because i would just go there it was it was quiet and and um you know put a mask in my pocket and, and go for a walk i always felt better about you know after that paul you also touched on couples therapy and during this quarantine there's been a pretty significant uptick in domestic violence of course uh, leading to substance use disorder increases as well so you, you know you're spot on with that we're seeing the reasons that people are coming into treatment and the struggles behind their um, reasons for coming in much greater because of this quarantine. One other thing I'd like to um, add that your interview actually prompted me to start thinking about and, and reading some articles on is that not only do you have those that are seeking help for substance use disorders, for all of the usual reasons that they may be predisposed to a substance use disorder, but we've got a ripple effect going on here. Um, we've got you know family caregivers who are taking care of aging parents um, that are unpaid caregivers committing their time to that. And this pandemic is taking the toll because the, the respite services for these people um, have been impacted. Isolation is compounded. We're seeing um, a, a surge in responses for opioid uh, overdoses up 26%. And the ripple effect of, of that is, is first responders. So those first responders are also seeing more traumatic day-to-day -day 
um, experiences. And so we've got a layer in here of those being impacted by uh, the substance use disorder propensities, if you will, um, through the quarantine and the COVID crisis. So, yeah, I want to let anyone jump in when they want to, but here's what, here's what that prompted me, because uh, I work, uh, we are at my office, also known as the Trauma Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids, and we focus on um, treating people in outpatient after they've kind of, you know, been through a trauma or they're maybe in the middle of a chronic toxic stress situation. And so we have, uh, you know, treated first responders. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the biggest uh, difficulties is if they come across an overdose or a suicide, it can be devastating to uh, the fire department, the EMS, uh, the police that they have to go there. And that can really affect their stress levels, right? Not only that, but then we have the news reports. And this is, you know, it's real life. This is reality, what's happening. But then we have these, then we're having negative news reports constantly and people seem to be tuning in more to that gravitating more to that which then leads to more stress more mental duress which can then lead to more substance use which then leads to the exact same problem we're kind of in this circular thing and so it really um is difficult if you have any predisposition to a substance use issue or you've been in recovery uh, at this point it's just another challenge to have to get more self-care get more how do you get community how do you become more intentional how do you help yourself and and these and when i say this how you know usually the people that are educated or you know have been through a recovery program can can they can kind of know but how about all of these people that are in the misuse category right and they're and they're just dabbling they're going oh you know i this is there's a new uh, type of seltzer by a certain giant uh, brewer in the United States. I'm going to try that out, right? And I can I'm try gonna... it at four o'clock instead of five o'clock, right? And I'm, I'm at home. And well, I've heard this too. Yeah, I'm working from home. Why don't I have a drink? Go ahead. And anxiety and alcohol go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's you know there is a you know a, a half glass of wine is in fact a you know a bit of a a, 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 a stress reliever. So you start with that and then it compounds. And then our bodies get into that and get used to that. And thus the tolerance um, increases and the need for more alcohol or drugs increase. And thus then our brain gets wired into addiction. And so I know one thing that Sanford House has been doing really well that I very much enjoyed our, our working together um, in the community is that you are working to break away this stigma and shame about addiction and what is addiction, right? Because we're talking all about these behaviors right now because I think people can relate to that. And um, I've got plenty of podcasts about what is addiction, but addiction is a condition in the brain and in the nervous system that, and in the biological systems that persists, right? And then, then, and this is my perspective in the trauma world, I believe that is kind of the the uh, the beginning, and then people make up stories and narratives about it. And in our culture, we've had a lot of negative narratives towards anyone who had any sort of misuse or addiction. Um, and so, and then if we say negative things or shame them, that just that causes the, those people usually to withdraw further. 
and 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 use more. So how how can how is Sanford House and how can the listeners? So first, how is Sanford House, and then how are the listeners? How can we help uh, people that may be falling into the misuse or even the addiction category when there's all this negative societal shame and um, blame? put on people that use. Well, you, you're hitting on our philosophy uh, at Sanford House is, first of all, to care for those struggling with this disease. And as you said, it's a brain disease. You know, Thankfully, the Surgeon General in 2016 came out with a lengthy report on uh, the disease basis for um, addiction. So the shame and stigma that accompanies our clients as they come through the door is overwhelming. And part of our mission, not part of a big um, reason that we exist in the way we designed our programs is to help educate the culture around uh, those with addiction, the society and its perceptions of addiction to understand that this is in fact a brain disease. It's a disease of an organ of our body, much like diabetes and diabetes takes, you know, lifelong um, management. And that's how we need to approach substance use disorder is lifelong management of it. But we set the stage with our real estate and the houses and the home-like welcoming environment so that when people come in, they can feel validated and we can immediately start chiseling away at the shame and the stigma and the understanding of the neurobiology behind what's happening with them. Because, you know, their families are generally mad. There's debris in their wake as they come to seek treatment at usually a crisis point with some external motivations, a DUI, a husband threatening to leave. So the circumstances that people come in with are not uh, like you'd see in a cancer ward where someone is being welcomed and can I come and visit and can I bring you dinner? There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of anger and um, stigma involved with why did you do this? Why don't you love me as much as you love the bottle? So the, the Sanford House setting is one that we immediately begin to validate the work that someone is doing as courageous and necessary. And with that, uh, maybe I can um, hand it over to Linnell to talk a little bit about the, the clinical aspects of that. Yeah, I was thinking about a couple of things to kind of dovetail off of what Ray was saying. Um, first of all, kind of changing that narrative of that typical shame-based self-criticism, right? The stigma that's out there, they hear it from the community, they hear it from their families. And so a lot of them come in with that mindset of that shame-based criticism. And so it's, it's exciting to be able to sit down and begin to work through that, to take them from that narrative to more of a self-compassion, self-correction. And, and not look at it as the criticism, but look at it as how can I take this forward and look at it with compassion and work on the things that I need to do. And one of the things um, when Ray was saying that, that is something also that we offer for families because a lot of families are at the point 
where many come in and they're ready to file papers for divorce, or they're ready to take the children from them, or they're ready to just be totally done with their child or whomever. And so we see that a lot. And so for us to be able to have those dialogues with families and say, are you willing to join a support group? Are you willing to come into an educational evening once a week and begin to educate on this disease and help to understand what's going on? And we find when we're able to bring the family together and educate them a little bit, that it really has helped for the families to come together and begin to look at this as a brain disorder and not just because their loved one wants to go out and wreck their life or they want to you know be destructive in things and that they don't care so self-compassion paul is a big part of what we do and it's more than just being compassionate to yourself it really is beginning the process of building resiliency and bringing in that common humanity that we're all going to struggle, we're all going to have to work through things. But as we show self-compassion, we can build that level of resiliency to be able to deal with some of the stressors, especially nowadays with some of the ongoing uncertainties that we're facing. I love it. Uh, who else wants to chime in on this? Well, the one thing I, um, you know, I would say too is that we haven't really talked about it yet, but the the behavioral health field has really turned on a dime in the last few months to provide as much as possible um, virtual you know, telehealth and, and treatment in, in virtual platforms. And um, one of the things that Sanford has done during this period is to really reach out to our alumni and to the families as, as Linnell was talking about and to provide for them uh, telehealth or, or virtual related um, programming uh, so that during this period of time, instead of uh, anger or some other negative emotion, they're, they're, you know, they're more understanding and empathetic and um, you know, learning some tools right along with their loved one in recovery. I went to a lecture, Paul, and I wish this were, were my line, but it was someone else's that I, that I frequently borrow. And it's, um, it's that this is the only disease that heals with love. And so when you're healing from this disease and you need a community around you and you need the love uh, to, um, to begin that journey of recovery and the healing process, um, I think we've pivoted to a telehealth platform and uniquely been able to provide some of that community in ways that we had to get really creative to do it. And it takes a, a skilled counselor to, in the area of substance use disorder, it really takes a skilled counselor to make a virtual uh, therapy successful, to reach in with uh, depth and richness and read behind the scenes. Because with addiction, you're, you know, the symptoms of the disease are behavior. And so for our therapists to be able to chip away at the defense systems that are a part of the disease are a little more challenging in virtual uh, telehealth. But we've, um, we've been able to pivot and, and provide those services to our clients and to incoming clients that 
are just beginning the journey of recovery. But it, you'll never replace the community and the peer supports of being in a residential treatment center or an outpatient uh, in-person setting. So we, we are not um, blind to those challenges that lie ahead as, as COVID-19 doesn't appear to be going anywhere soon. But we've been able to, in a therapeutic way, um, implement this invaluable tool. And then going beyond the quarantine and the reasons for it are that we're now in a position where we can service people when they leave our residential community and go back to their homes in Alpena or um, you know, someplace that doesn't have um, services available to be able to properly support them in a, in, a, in a really critical way through virtual telehealth. And with that, maybe Linnell can speak a little bit more to what she sees. Um, I know one thing that we see in telehealth is a lot more pets in treatment because people have their, their puppies or their kittens sitting on their laps. And, um, and so there's a, there's a new level of intimacy when it comes to um, telehealth, which is actually, I think, beneficial in helping clients and therapists um, develop a therapeutic relationship um, in, a, in a deeper, richer way. I think we found um, with telehealth that there are some advantages to it and it is meeting the needs of many people that maybe still are ambivalent about their addiction and they're not ready to come into a, an outpatient facility or they're certainly not ready to come into a residential facility. And the great thing about it is it begins to open up those doors of maybe this is something I need to do. And so we have seen that a lot with clients that will call and say, you know, I'm gonna give it a try. Can I, can I come into your IOP program? Can I start there first? And then as they begin to meet in the groups and develop relationships and start not feeling so isolated, you know, we will have clients say, I look forward to every time we get together, even with the Bean Telehealth, to be able to see people's faces. And even through the screen, we're making connections. And that is vital. But the thing I like about it, there's many things I like about it, but one thing that I'm seeing is that we do have clients that start and have that ambivalence. But soon after getting involved and, and connecting with other people, realizing they need to go to a higher level of care, and then we're able to help orchestrate that for them and bring them into residential. And then they can begin that journey even in person. But you know, it is exciting to see that even through telehealth that we've been able to reach out and help people. And I, I do wanna say another thing about telehealth that we've been able to connect with families that are in different states that we hadn't been able to prior. And in our support group is once your loved one has been in our program, you are alumni as well, and you can stay within that support system for as long as you want, and you can stay within the educational piece as long as you want. And so those are things that have been exciting that we can reach a little further than just Michigan or even you know a few states around is that we're actually going on the other side of the United States, and that's exciting. So that is that is amazing. Go ahead, Marilyn. To me, it's super exciting too, because, um, you know, there's so, I mean, I love to hear our, our clinical director wax poetic about telehealth because it's here to stay um, one way or the other. You know, Walmart, um, Sam's Club, CVS, 
are all establishing um, telehealth programs, some actually with behavioral health um, capabilities. So, so, you know, when the big guys are jumping into it, we know that it's probably gonna stick around, but, but for us to be able to meld it into our continuum of care is pretty exciting. Yes, um, I, I want to know in a moment about all of the things the Sanford House has to offer, Sanford Houses and the addiction treatment centers that you have, because I want, I want the public to know about your program because I find it very unique, honestly. Uh, I had a few comments. First of all, on the telehealth bit, I have found there's a lot of pros and cons. There's always trade-offs. But having telehealth now validated by insurance companies, most of them, um, and having that as an option is actually very good as a hybrid, especially when this pandemic kind of comes to an end. Having this as an option, because like you said, you can reach families. You can bring in people from other states. Um, for instance, in family therapy, I even had a session recently where two of the members came in with masks and you know in our socially distanced office, and then the other member was on the computer, and we had a family therapy session, and it was fantastic to be able to utilize that um, tool. And then, as you said, we'll get into you know your continuum of care there at Sanford Treatment Centers, but um, you know, having that alumni group and that support group, I know that a lot of substance use support groups, just the basic ones that are, you know, like AA and NA and all of that are going online. Uh, a lot of the, uh, parent support groups are going online. And I know that your support group has gone online, uh, due to COVID, you can't be bringing in 20 different people from whoever comes that week until this is over. Um, so I'm seeing it as a positive. I, I miss some of the in-person, but I think at this point, more connection in whatever way we can do it is always better. And so I think eventually it will be a hybrid situation. And I just wanted to throw out there for the listeners, and I'm sure you already know this, but um, Kristen Neff from the University of Texas at Austin's Department of Educational Psychology has been studying self-compassion here for about, I don't know, 10, 15 years. I saw her speak in California last year. And she is now proving with clinical long-term studies that doing a five-minute or more, usually more, self-compassion practice can improve all sorts of uh, conditions such as depression and anxiety. And as we know, depression and anxieties are huge comorbid uh, co-occurring factors when it comes to substance use. So the fact that Sanford House and addiction treatment centers have taken self-compassion as one of their central uh, missions... Um, to help with the the clients coming in, I think is uh, not only a great idea, but now is empirically proven as a valid um, intervention to uh, to to uh, behavioral health. So I wanted to compliment you on that. Um, and I I I will say, you know, I you know sometimes the substance use uh, continuum of care in the greater gestalt of the United States gets a bad rap. Uh, uh, for listeners out there that have kind of said, uh, you know, I hear, you know, let's pick on Florida because Florida is annoying to me right now. Um, uh, you know, uh, come to Florida. We've got these great treatment centers and it only costs 60 grand and possibly, you know, sign over your life insurance policy to us. And then your kid will be great. They'll be fixed. And you know, good luck. Right. And, and, and I, I know that's not everyone in Florida. So for, don't, no libel suits. Um, there's plenty of good treatment centers in Florida, but, um, 
there's that sort of idea that sometimes these treatment centers are not working with the family. They're just, you know, trying to find people uh, who are desperate, you know, to come in. And I know Sanford House is the exact opposite of that, which is why I put your literature and uh, everything out at my office. But I want to talk about, you know, why you guys are different than other treatment facilities and how you have worked on the mission statement and how you work with families on cost. And I've already heard stories in the community of you working with families on cost, helping them out, trying to figure out the best thing for them. And also just the fact that you have these free groups that people can attend far after they've graduated from your treatment program, which I think is, I don't know, I haven't heard of that before honestly, except, you know, with Smart and AA. So if you could elaborate kind of on your continuum of care and why you guys are different and, you know, especially here in Michigan, there's not many, there's not as many options. So, so Paul, I'd like to have Linnell talk about our continuum of care, but before we start that um, conversation, I wanted to circle back around to something um, that relates to this pandemic and telehealth is that when the news reporters started picking up on the opiate crisis, it started a dialogue that made the conversation about substance use disorder more comfortable for this society and culture as a whole. And that was resulting in some progress. But this COVID-19 and the resulting telehealth has has done a similar thing with people's comfort level on seeking treatment. A younger generation that grew up with computers and with that being their comfort level are now um, approaching substance use disorder through that platform. And older people, I won't mention my own name or any other names, that maybe weren't as comfortable with these platforms are gaining a comfort level with it. So it's expanding our ability to connect with others um, in a way that may not have happened otherwise. Um, Just as the opiate crisis created a dialogue where people were more comfortable talking about this disease, um, it was due to unfortunate you know, a price that we paid both in the COVID and with the with the uh, drug epidemic. But anyway, with that said, um, I, I'd like to talk about the continuum of care. And the exciting news for Sanford is that in 2021, we will be opening up a subacute detox. And what that means is that we will be able to medically stabilize um, clients that come to us. Right now, we use um, other detox uh, facilities to do that, and there is a dearth of beds. There are not enough beds in West Michigan to even begin um, as a drop in the bucket serving those who need detox. So that's going to be part of our expansion in the next six months, which will take us into 2021. Um, and with that, I'll let Linnell, uh describe a little bit more, starting with our continuum of care um, and residential. And remember, as we have this discussion, people don't go through this continuum of care in any particular order. People can enter at different levels of care and move up or down through the process. Uh, So with that, I'll let Linnell talk a little bit about our continuum of care. Sure, if I talk about the levels of care, if I start at our highest, which is residential, um, that's anywhere between two weeks 30 days that the client would come into either the uh, Cherry Street facility, which is gender specific female, or John Street, which is our male. 
Um, and so they would enter that and stay there. Some stay up two weeks. We like them to stay longer, up to a month, and some have stayed a little bit longer. But the continuum of care then is for some, they'll go into partial, which is our day program, and then they can transition into our intensive outpatient, which is an additional six weeks. And then they can go into our outpatient program, which really can go into up to a year, especially if the client participates in our medication assisted treatment program. Even through telehealth, we've been able to continue all of those tracks. Um, our medical teams are able to talk to clients via our telehealth virtual meetings, talk about their medication. Some will still come in to get their Vivitrol shots, but a lot of that is also able at this present time to be done through telehealth. So it's a good, um, it's a good continuum. That's one of the things that I really like about working at Sanford. As we know working in this field, the longer that they're able to stay with the consistency of treatment, the structure of a program, just the better chance of them staying in long-term recovery and learning what that's going to be like. Wonderful. So yes, and that's a very important aspect of treatment, I think, uh, especially what I was talking about, this sort of like cure-all treatment center idea, is that um, there is sort of a fantasy in our culture about this like, you know, quick fix, you know, a pill for an ill, they say, um, or oh, I'm going to go to treatment center. And then I'll, after that, I'm going to be good. I'm going to be drug free forever. And so the real work is there, you know, in the inpatient center, but then it's also in the partial work because you've got to be partially in the community and you've got to learn how to implement this with the, tr with the triggers of, that could be literally your kitchen. Your kitchen could be a trigger. Opening the refrigerator could be a trigger. Um, anything if you have a law and what I mean by trigger is something that's influencing you to use in a kind of an impulsive manner. Uh, and the way I'm using it today, although there's many other versions of that, I'm referring to the substance use trigger. Uh, sure. And then when you're in the, and then when you graduate from that program, then having the intensive outpatient experience, which is a group therapy where people get to learn new things, try new techniques, but also share their story and learn how other people are coping is and that can be done right now over telehealth. Um, as I know you've been utilizing that it's then that the challenges really start to appear. You know, if you're only going a couple days a week to therapy and then you drop down to one day a week of therapy and the rest of your life is, is a challenge. And that's how we implement these long-term changes. So the fact that it's all under one roof or treatment center, it's not one roof, multiple roofs, but the same program coordinating it, is so important and vital in my mind because a lot of treatment programs, they're like, oh yeah, for aftercare, go to a therapist. Or there's like a little bit of aftercare. But the aftercare is where the work that you've done, detoxing and learning these things begins even again until it becomes a lifestyle. The lifestyle is a lifestyle of recovery and not just recovery, but loving your life and finding outlets and improving finding uh, different relationships, another big one, uh, finding new relationships, because after somebody's done using, uh, or, or, or reduces their using, depending on their situation, uh, a lot of the people they used to associate with may not want to hang out with them if they aren't going to participate in the use That's of absolutely behavior. True. So go, yeah, Ray, so tell us, what, what are your thoughts? So the, if you read any of the government websites, you're going to see that some of the statistics indicate that 50% of relapses 
happen within the first 90 days. And so the critical treatment portion of keeping someone's um, brain cocooned in a healing process during that first three months, and that's a, that's a, a primary um, uh, motivation for a continuum of care is to keep someone in that process while their brain is still very vulnerable to post-acute withdrawal and the, and the relapse recurrence process. And then what we view our job is uh, in that continuum of care is to prepare people for that lifelong journey. And when we say lifelong disease management, we include that change in lifestyle and, and our role is to help them achieve that. And so some of those courses in outpatient, we like to call them courses because we, we look at some of our programming as um, is that when you go to school and that exciting first day when you're picking an elective and you want to take certain classes, we try to provide options when we get to the point of those outpatient um, courses, such as relapse prevention or how to live a life of wellness and recovery or holistic um, aspects to recovery so that we make it interesting and exciting as people go on through that continuum of care and into the long-term journey of recovery. Well, I, oh, sorry, oh, just a quick quick aside, the, those same uh, government websites that, that Ray was talking about also um, show the statistic that a one a, a year, you know, a solid year of some sort of formal treatment will reduce your, your relapse rates to about 20%. So, right. So the longer the better that you can be, you know, connected to um, some sort of formal treatment. I just wanted to say, in addition to what Ray was saying about post-acute withdrawal, you know, we have clients that come into residential and a big part of what we do in the time that they're in the residential is really stabilize them, you know, work on just their medical, their mental, their spiritual, their physical. There's a lot of different elements, that holistic picture of looking at each client. And so with the continuum of care, it gives, like Ray said, the opportunity for the brain to heal and for them to be able to look at life. Because when they're in residential, they are protected. It is a little bit of a haven, you know? They're still talking with families, but they're not dealing with some of those stressors that they would if they were out living in the community again, or triggers of being home where maybe that's where they drank. So, the continuum of care then provides the opportunity for them for them to be in groups and individual sessions on an ongoing, consistent basis to recognize the human um, humanity, the common humanity of the struggles that we're going to have. Just because you're not using your drug of choice doesn't mean everything is going to go well. And so that continuity of care and that continuum of care helps to equip them to learn to be able to deal with those stressors because they're not going to go away. In fact, sometimes they're a little bit greater because we're not numbing now with that drug of choice. And so that's another reason why I believe the continuum and the continuity of ongoing care is just vital, as Ray said, you know, in those especially first 90 days where it's very common for relapse to occur. Very good. Um, I feel like I'm getting a good picture of the, your, your program. And I know you have uh, two different houses that 
our beautiful old gorgeous houses historically restored here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And uh, those are your inpatient, right? And then I know you also have some sort of treatment facility nearby where you were doing outpatient therapy and intensive outpatient therapy, which I'm assuming now is they're still using it, but it's more of a telehealth, uh, more of a hybrid situation. Um, so uh, what about, I, I want to know about a couple of things about your house, the, the treatment center, but also I want to kind of put some questions out there for people that, you know, may be looking for a resource. So uh, the first thing is, um, can you just tell us a little bit about how, how you normally handle somebody coming in and, and calling and saying, hey, I need help, and then maybe a little bit of how you've been handling it since COVID uh, quarantine has began. Sure. So we have a very um, compassionate, skilled admissions team. Uh, one of the um, admissions specialists is a nurse so that we can do some medical screenings when necessary, which is, is a lot of the time. Uh, and the, the first call is, you know, to Sanford House admissions or an inquiry on the website, which we try to respond to within a day. Uh, and that's generally what happens is we begin a screening and assessment as to what level of care someone might be in need of or what they're looking for. And it's oftentimes the hardest thing is just picking up the phone and making that first call. So having someone reach a friendly, welcoming, compassionate voice at the other end of the line is a big part of our job. If Sanford House, for whatever reason, is not the fit, and that can be for funding reasons, uh, geographical reasons, there's a, there's a myriad of reasons that it may not be um, the place. We also serve as a resource bank. So we give people phone numbers to call um, and help them get to the places that they, you know, they need to be. But if someone comes into our treatment, the first thing we start out is a biopsychosocial and that comprehensive assessment helps us determine you know, where they should be at and what level of treatment they should be at. Um, so maybe I'll let Linnell speak a little bit more to this, but it, is, um, it really is a phone call or getting on our website and looking at what the options are, Paul, to see what's there. You know, the, the um, two houses are because our philosophy is gender specific. Um, we really feel in the research supports that uh, men and women heal better in a gender-specific environment. Uh, that's true at the residential level, not necessarily at the outpatient level, because as you said before, that's when people need to start stepping back into, um, you know, the real world, so to speak. And Linnell, do you have anything to add to that? Um, just recently, I'm noticing it more, is the families that are calling because of the stress of COVID-19 are it's already over the waterfall you know there's such desperation on their voices you can hear as you speak with them about getting a family member into a treatment facility and i don't have any other choices what am i going to do and our admissions team does an excellent job at coming alongside and personalizing it and and we look at clients as not just a number you know, they're, they're individuals that we wanna care for and they have a name and they have a life and they have families. And so we really try to, from the very beginning, from that very first phone call, make them feel as if they are special 
and that they are important and that we want to be able to help them. But the process is once they're approved medically and clinically to come in, then they would go to the houses if it would be residential and they would right away meet with a therapist that would be assigned to them and we do do the um, biopsychosocial and it helps us to understand what are some things that we can work on what's your treatment plan going to look like person-centered each individual has an individual treatment plan and what are those things we're going to do while you're here how can we prioritize some present concerns and then we'll continue that. From the very beginning, we're already talking about aftercare because we know the importance of that providing that stability. Paul, one um, thing to note is that when we founded Sanford House, we founded it for an underserved population. And it might be surprising to hear that that underserved population are those who have private insurance. So only 20% of the people in Michigan with private insurance seek treatment, and most of them were going out of state. And what my husband and I saw when we were doing our homework on um, founding a treatment center that was different and unique in the state of Michigan was that people were in fact leaving the state to get treatment. Now, a lot of that is rooted in insurance coverage and reimbursements, and Michigan is not known for um, it's reimbursements for mental health um, and substance use disorder. So anyway, it's just, I think it's, it's worth noting that the, you know, one of the underserved populations here that we were reaching out to and we're expanding that reach and looking at public payer sources now and, and different, um, different options on how we can help people who are in desperate need of help. But to start, it was that privately insured population. Yes, and that gives people an option in the Midwest to stay a little closer to home. And as uh, literature would indicate, California, Arizona, Colorado, and a few places in Texas and a bunch of places in Florida are kind of the prom, as far as I'm Right. understand the prominent treatment centers. So people are flying out of state, they're away from home. Here, it gives them, uh, you know, some of that familiarity uh, if they're they're from here um, in, in this area. So... Um, and we're only two, about two hours and 10 minutes the way I drive to Chicago. Um, <laughs> and so that's, that's good. And we're about, I don't know, what will be an hour, 45 minutes from Detroit or depends but about suburbs. that. That's right. And that's suburbs pretty are closer, for, but yeah. For even but, families to come and do family visits and that. And we, you know, we are, um, we're a comfortable, welcoming setting in historic homes, but we like to pride ourselves on Midwestern values. This is, um, this is a program where you work hard uh, and it takes, um, it takes a lot of courage to come in and, and, you know, we provide the space that feels uh, welcoming, but it, it's, it's hard work. It's not a luxury um, spa-like program as some of them on the West Coast advertise themselves to be. It is something where you come in and, and do um, what it takes to begin the healing process from a very uh, devastating disease. And a very community oriented. I I like. I'm I'm really looking forward to the pandemic being over, so we can even you guys can get back to a lot more of the community stuff that you've been having to hybrid. But I I noticed that you know, and we do have an international airport here, so people can fly in for it. But some of the West Coast, I feel, and Florida um, over marketing and and the and the pricing of those were based on the fact that they had these sort of amenities that that seemed luxurious, right? 
And, and I see it seemed like the focus was on that versus the focus was on the treatment in the community seemed to be lacking at a few, especially even in Arizona. I'll pick on Arizona. There were some in Prescott, Arizona that were lacking some of this community. They were focusing on, oh, we go rock climbing here and there and all that. And it was like kind of their marketing scheme. So I think we're missing the, if we're talking about the food and the amenities as the main draw to a treatment center, I think that's the wrong focus. And so I like the fact that we are using um, what are the latest empirically proven therapy techniques and mix that with the number one thing we know that works in every type of therapy, which has been proven statistically in multiple books by Bruce Wampold and other researchers, which is the relationship, the relationship between the therapists and the medical professionals um, you can look this up in bedside manner. You can look this up in any sort of research uh, for doctors. It's the same thing. Compliance with uh, treatment plans uh, it goes up if the doctor and the, if the client believes the doctor believes in them and they have a good rapport. Uh, the treatment basically uh, gets better if uh, if the therapists have that person centered approach. And so Sanford House, as a treatment center, has a person centered approach that is non judgmental, non shaming, non blaming. We're kind of uh, it, we're getting out of that we're completely countercultural to the old way of treating substance use, which was confrontation, um, uh, shaming, telling people that they were terrible, all these stupid things that are completely based on people's emotional reactions to their anger about the substance use and the behavior, which can be, you know, is a valid emotion, but it's not a successful way to treat the illness. Um, and obviously with, person-centered and, and uh, love and, and care and hard work, we also have the boundaries and a, a ways to set loving boundaries so that people have less incentive to use upon returning That's um, right. and more incentive to live uh, a life in, in, a, in a healthy way. So that, that's kind of how I see... When we talk about, when we talk about the relationship, um, the, the relationship between the therapist and the client is, in fact evidence-based that's an evidence-based treatment model mm -hmm. and when you're coming into treatment it's really important to have that therapeutic engagement as immediately as possible because we only have a little bit of time i mean a month may seem like a long time but when you're when you're treating substance use disorder that still feels like we've got to get everything done that we can in that amount of time and so our clinicians are particularly skilled at creating that compassionate, welcoming, immediate um, therapeutic engagement so that we can hit the ground running. And for some, that is the first time they've ever had any interaction with someone that really cares about them and actually is not judging them. And for many, you know, they come from families where they've been criticized nonstop. And so for them to be able to come in and build a rapport and actually feel special and needed. Um, I hear that all the time in the houses with our men and women that, you know, there's so much shame, there's so much self-criticism that they put on themselves, kind of that inner critic, you know, that we all tend to have sometimes. But a lot of times in addiction, it is very, very strong. And so I have found personally being a therapist and working with the therapists at Sanford, the importance of that building relationships and the importance of developing that rapport. And that is a big part of recovery. 
I love it. And uh, yeah, I, there's a quote, I don't know who said this, but they said, if punishment worked, there would be few, uh, if any, uh, people with addictions in this country. Um, so punishment doesn't work. Uh, boundaries work, limits work, uh, compassion works. But we really, if you're in a, uh, this is for the audience, if you're in a situation where you feel like your substance use is starting to get out of control, it's impacting you socially, it's impacting your relationships, it's impacting your work, it's impacting your sleep, your health, um, there is help out there. And I know that you all answer the phones and the emails. And uh, there's a thing called triage, which means that if we can't help you, we'll find a place that can help you. And I know I do that all the time. Every week I'm answering phone calls or emails from people that I can't even serve here at my outpatient clinic. Um, the good news is that now due to telehealth, um, not only is the, you know, can they serve you in the homes, but if you're, you know, depending on where you are, I, I'm assuming we can now serve people long distance as well, um, depending on the qualifiers. Um, so is there any advice you have out there for two, two sets of parties? Number party number one, people themselves who are feeling that they're starting to have an issue and they're afraid that they're going to go down the wrong path of addiction, which can lead to terrible health outcomes and awful uh, life situations. And number two, the family members of anyone who they believe has an addiction they're worried about. Is there any advice you can give to those two groups? Uh, I'd love to give you all a say. Pick up the phone. Pick up the phone and call somebody who can help educate you on the process. And the reason it's important to pick up the phone and not uh, wait is because if you think something's going on, it probably is going on. And if you're sensing symptoms or signs or you're questioning uh, yourself or someone in your family, the likelihood of an issue um, is, is you know, pretty certain. But the other reason it's important to pick up the phone is because someone can start sensing these things at a, the point of misuse. And if we can start capturing people at the point of misuse before it's a fully uh, progressed chronic disease state, then there's still some choice involved there. You know, there's still um, options to learn about the disease and have some lifestyle changes and that. So I think wherever you're at, don't wait until it gets to be a crisis. Um, pick up the phone and get your information and do your homework. I would say the same thing to begin with just dialoguing. Not everybody that comes into treatment even thinks they have a problem. They know there's some issues there. You know, one of the reasons why we use the motivational interviewing is the opportunity of being able to dialogue about, you know, maybe this is an issue. Let's talk about that. So even just picking up the phone and starting that dialogue can be so important. And just one point for families, you know, there's a lot of families out there that are just desperate to get help for their loved one, but their loved one might not be ready to get that help. And so my um, advice and suggestion is that the family member get the help that they need to set boundaries and good self-care for themselves. Because we know how that is when people are caring for other people. There are so many times they're not taken care of. And so that would be something else I would encourage families. If your loved one isn't ready, then take care of yourself and set yourself up so that you can be in a healthier place. And one more, one last thing from me, and that is just um, asking for help. You know, we, we've been talking about isolation. I think the disease of addiction is a lonely, it's a lonely thing. And 
so many people who are struggling think they're the only person who's ever experienced what they're experiencing. So asking for help and, and starting this dialogue, um, I think it's a real relief to know that you're not alone. You're not the only person who's ever done these horrible things. I like it. And, uh, you know, just for people out there, a, uh, a symptom of depression, which is always exasperated by substance use, is sort of this so, uh, often can be accompanied when you're feeling terrible and depressed that you are the only one suffering. And that's actually a symptom that we see. I don't remember what that one's called, but it's in the DSM where it's like this sort of myopic focus on the problem and myself, I'm the problem, right? And, 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 and uh, it's not true. Everyone has a problem and we're all in a spectrum of anxiety and depression. And right now, due to toxic chronic stress of the uh, worldwide situation, which you may be in, or just moderate stress, your continuum of anxiety or depression may be pushed one way or the other. And if you've got any substance history in your family, or you have yourself had a period of overconsumption or misuse, your uh, spectrum will be pushing towards that addiction state that we don't want to get into because that's when it gets out of control. And that's when you start to, like I think Ray said there, or somebody said there's still some choice involved. Uh, that's when you start losing your freedom and your choice and your control. And I think one of the biggest things with being a human is we hate losing control. We want to control our bodies and our minds. And the, the hard part about substance is while it deludes you into thinking you're in control, you actually start to lose control over time. And that is a biological fact. It's not uh, anything to do with your level of tenacity or resiliency. It literally is just biology that it will overtake you, just like diabetes, just like heart disease, just like um, any sort of skeletal muscular issue, uh, any chronic autoimmune disorder, it will take over. And then what happens is you lose control of your life. So before right. before it gets there and before your family member gets there, reach out, get help. We'll have links in the show notes how you can uh, get a hold of Sanford uh, treatment centers and um, and all of that. And uh, I'll probably throw some general links in there as well for some of the free support groups, you know, just to get your toe in the water if you're if you're thinking about it. Um, I, I'm so grateful for, um, these amazing people that have been on my show today. I want to give you all a chance to say like a kind of a parting word or something to the audience or whatever you want, if you'd like, uh, before we close out. So, um, who wants to go? I'll start. This is Ray. There's hope. Don't be discouraged. It's a, it's a disease that takes its toll not only on the person struggling themselves, but on their families. And there is help and life can be better than you ever imagined when you find the bright place of recovery. And I think just to say again, that you're not alone, you know, the common humanity that many are struggling with addiction and other issues and to just reach out. There are people that want to come alongside and help and encourage in this time. And I would just say that there's a myriad of opportunities uh, via telehealth and virtual platforms um, and they are everywhere. You just Google them and um, you know, there's really no excuse to, um, to be alone and isolated during this, even during this time. 
I love it. Um, I could not agree more. And, uh, you know, I've worked as a therapist for over 13 years. And what I've seen time and time again is um, people, uh, whether they were clients or family members of clients, and they say, um, well, no one could ever help them or no one could, nothing could ever change. And that's also a symptom of depression. So that's a, that's an untrue thought that our brain thinks when it does not know of a possibility. So seeking outside input, you need input from the outside and education. Uh, they say knowledge is power, but education is the key. And just learning a little bit about this breaks us out of our cultural and family narratives that may be uh, perpetuating our uh, negative self-image or uh, reasons to drink, uh, reasons to use, and uh, and also our secret reasons to use and secret reasons to drink that we may not want to tell anybody about, which may be trauma-based or um, you know spiritually based or physical uh, you know situations. And so all of that can be taken care of in therapy. Uh, that's why there's a custom approach at your place and at and at my place where we don't we do not um, put people into boxes. Um, the the substance use is a symptom and it's a symptom of something greater which is uh, you know people are lacking meaning they're having difficulties and there's there's always 5 to 20 dimensions of why the problems occur so um by by acknowledging and accepting that you may have a troubling issue uh it's a brave thing and, and it's not something and, and it's something to be proud of that you can you can actually uh, level with yourself or your loved one to be able to get the help because not not only do we have anecdotal evidence that treatment works, uh, but we have scientific evidence showing that um, of all the modalities, uh, therapy itself in a, a meta-analysis of ten thousand studies done in two thousand one at University of Wisconsin had a had a uh, efficacy rate of point seven nine which means that people that went to 10 therapy sessions or more reported that they felt better, had met their goals, and were doing better than people that had not gone to 10 therapy sessions and, and had the same issue. And that goes for all issues. So, uh, you know, the efficacy rate of aspirin, I think, is like 0. 0.2, right? We're t- so that, and that, that's pretty much worked for me every time. You know, so if therapy's efficacy rate is about 0. 0.79 or 0. 0.8, that is off the charts, and, you know, we, we will, you know, and so we have to understand that also, you know, there's medically assisted things and medications that can help as well integrated into these programs, um, but that the therapy alone will work. The hard part is opening yourself up to it. So if you can take that first step uh, and get on the phone, like Ray said, and, and jump on the internet and get, get yourself uh, into some emails and some contact forms, uh, change will occur. It just doesn't happen overnight. Um, it doesn't happen in a mystical, uh, mythical way. Uh, uh, no one's going to come into your home and take your drugs and flush them. You know, um, you know, you might have a relative who's done that, but you'll just go get more. So we need to take the step ourselves, and that's the hardest part. But it is rewarding because the long-term uh, rewards you can't even imagine. So that's my spiel today. Thanks, Paul. Thank you, Paul. This has been great.
And there you have it. This has been another episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast. If you are enjoying this show, please share it with people you know. I would surely appreciate it. Or leave us a rating on iTunes. Until next time on the Intentional Clinician, I am wishing you all a safe and peaceful week. If you are looking for an Emdria consultant, I am now an Emdria consultant in training and can provide 15 of the 20 hours needed to become an Emdria certified therapist. I am going to be starting an Emdria consulting group, both online and in person, this fall. Check out details at Counseling Supervisor GR or HealthForLifeGR.com. The recording you just listened to consists of the personal opinions of Paul Krauss and his guests, and while these are based upon the literature they have read and their experience in the field, they should not be viewed as the definitive opinion on this or any other subject. Listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. If you are in crisis, please dial 911 right now or the National Suicide Prevention Line 1-800-273-8255. Are you a young person of color feeling down, stressed, or overwhelmed? Text Steve, that's S-T-E-V-E, to 741741. Steve to 741741, and a live, trained crisis counselor will respond to you. If you are in need of counseling, do not hesitate to make an appointment with a local counselor in your area. You can also make an appointment with the excellent clinicians in the Grand Rapids, Michigan area. They are working at Health for Life Grand Rapids and the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids. Just check out www.healthforlifegr.com. That's www.healthforlifegr.com. Or put into Google the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids and give us a call. Thanks so much for listening. This has been Paul Krause of The Intentional Clinician.
Baby, what's your problem? Don't make me come down and solve them reflex. Gonna drive the action, some kind of perverse attraction. Who's next? Gonna flex your muscle, gonna shake it like the oop, like hustle. Pay now, pray now, lay down. They don't do it hot style in your town. They say the travel bronze the mind. Maybe it takes some time now. They say you got so cool to be kind. Maybe it takes some time now. They say the travel bronze the mind. Maybe it takes some time now. They say the travel bronze the mind. Now, now, you know he's a regular. Yeah. He's a hard, hard man to love. Go straight for the jugular. Yeah. He's a hard, hard man to love. Taking liberties because he can. Not within the purview of the modern man. Takes his hat on spectacular. Yeah. He's a hard, hard man. Stripping from floor to ceiling Hey now, hands down like wow Gonna give you what for you're needing Bleeding, bleeding, reading Now you're in a tent for succeeding They say the travel bronze the mind Maybe it takes some time now They say that all true lovers are blind Maybe it takes some time now They say the travel bronze the mind Maybe it takes some time now I say you know you're gonna be mine
And it, it's exciting to see, Scott. You know, I, I know there could be some negatives um, about that. Paul. But I know. I'm sorry, Paul. <laughs> I'll, I'll edit that out. Just start with, it's exciting to see. <laughs> we'll edit that. That's funny. You know okay. Paul, we're really excited about that. <laughs> I'm so excited. I forgot your name. <laughs> as soon as I said it, I knew that. I'm sorry. 